On this second Sunday of the season of Epiphany, we move ahead from Jesus' birth all the way to his baptism as a grown man. And this marks the beginning of his ministry. Now, one might expect, as John the Baptist clearly does, that Jesus would be the one to baptize him. But Jesus insists on submitting himself to John, much as he would later insist on humbly washing the feet of his own disciples. You see, Jesus does not appear to be too concerned with authority, hierarchy, or doing things in the proper way. He insists on treating others as equals, despite his divine nature. Maybe because of his divine nature. Jesus doesn't care that John the Baptist is a mere mortal, a sinner in his own right. No more than he's bothered by the fact that the River Jordan is likely polluted by the hundreds of people that are bathing in it. Because Jesus knows there's no such thing as pure water. Today's reading is from Matthew 3, 1 through 6, and 13 through 7. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some people are disappointed, I think, to learn that there's nothing particularly special about the water in our baptismal font. No, it is not specially imported from the River Jordan or some fresh mountain spring. It hasn't been baptized by the Pope, although I don't know why that would matter unless you're Catholic. It hasn't been filtered or distilled or purified in any way. I'm sorry to break it to you, but it's just regular old tap water. My wife, Angela, seemed disillusioned when I told her as much. I suppose that's typical when you're married to a pastor and you get to see all the things that goes on behind the scenes. The clerical robes getting dry cleaned, the leftovers of the communion bread buttered and eaten with a bowl of soup for lunch on a Sunday afternoon. 
The Bible casually stuffed into the glove box of the car alongside insurance cards and vehicle registration papers. The sacred made profane, or at least mundane. When you're a preacher, it all sort of blends together. But who among us really gets to determine or decide what is sacred and what is profane? Is it wrong to eat communion bread for lunch? Is the water from the tap too crude for sacramental use? Rather than subscribe to creeds and dogma created by men, and it usually is men, with an authoritarian streak and an obsession with so-called purity, I personally tend to lean towards the spirits of the law rather than the letter of the law. And in that spirit, our religious liturgies are not magical rites that have to be performed just so, in some precise way, with the proper implements and ingredients. They are symbolic and evocative of powers that are beyond our ability to understand or harness or control. Symbols are just that. They point to something beyond themselves, something greater than themselves. And so long as the symbols serve that purpose, regardless of the particulars, the ritual has value. It works. A few years back, I can remember sitting right here in one of these chairs during worship, just before I was about to call up a child and her family to be baptized. And I realized in a moment of panic that I had never checked to see if anyone had actually put water in the baptismal font. Now, if it turned out to be empty and I had to stop the whole service while someone went to go fill it up, well, that would be mighty embarrassing. But at this point, there was nothing to be done about it. Even so, my mind raced trying to figure out a way to get water into the font without disrupting the service. And that's when I saw it. A half-empty bottle of Dasani under the pulpit. I could, I thought to myself, could I? I realized that even if I were to use this water, I'd still have to get everyone, all of you, to turn around while I put it in the baptismal font. I briefly considered the old, look, it's Jesus, trick, but decided against it. And, you know, even I had to admit that using someone's old drinking water to baptize a baby just felt wrong and kind of gross. So you'll be relieved to know that for me at least, it was a bridge too far. So I took my chances, and when the time came to remove the cover of the font, I breathed a sigh of relief. One of the ushers had refilled the water before the service. Tap water. Seems a lot better now, doesn't it, when you consider the alternative? <laughs> or were you hoping for something more pure? The Christian sacrament of baptism has its roots in Jewish purity laws. The ancient Israelites, following the law as prescribed by Moses, were deeply concerned with purity and ritual cleanliness. Now, when you consider that these rules originated amongst an essentially nomadic people, that makes a lot of sense. Life on the road is dirty, and water can be hard to come by, and strict protocols help to prevent disease, and indignity. There were many things the 
according to Deuteronomic law, that could make a person spiritually unclean. Some of these were avoidable with a little care, like eating pork or shellfish. Others were inevitable, depending on one's circumstances. Touching a corpse, for instance, or menstrual blood. Women who were menstruating were relegated to the edges of the camp, in fact, for fear of spiritual contamination. In his well-known book, The Year of Living Biblically, A.J. Jacobs attempts to connect with his Jewish heritage by following each and every one of the 1600, I'm sorry, 613 laws of the Hebrew Scriptures to the letter for one whole year. He carefully avoids wearing any clothes that blend linen and wool. He follows a strict kosher diet. He refuses to lie for even the most innocent reasons. You know, at one point, um, he's out with his wife, and they run into a, a couple that they know. And they, the couple says, oh, you know, we'll have to get together sometime. And, you know, anyone else would just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll work that out. But instead, when this happens, the couple says, oh, we have to get together sometime. And A.J. Jacobs says to them, no, I don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> Much to his wife's embarrassment. But even worse, when she does get her period, he tells her that he's not allowed to sit anywhere that she's been sitting. So understandably, she's you know, a little irritated and offended by this, so she proceeds to sit on every chair, couch, bed, and surface in their home. With so many ways to become spiritually unclean, the law also provides instructions for purifying oneself, typically by means of a ritual bath. And this is essentially what John the Baptist was offering in the Jordan when he baptized Jesus amongst hundreds of other people. As time went on and Christianity became its own religion, the sacrament took on new meaning and significance. Christians, at least the Gentiles among them, who were increasingly becoming the majority, did not adhere to Jewish purity codes. They had little use for a ritual bath except that they did have this doctrine of original sin, courtesy of the Apostle Paul, who cooked it up. He taught folks that the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden stained the entirety of the human race in perpetuity forever. And only the sacrament of baptism could expunge it. According to Catholic dogma, it was your only salvation from the fires of hell. Now, in our church, we have a very different understanding of baptism. We believe that we are already saved by grace, with or without the sacrament. But the sacrament is a public, ritual celebration of that very grace and of God's love. To baptize someone with water, a powerful symbol of God's Holy Spirit, is to name them as God's beloved to welcome them into our community, and to celebrate God's love together in community. It's a celebration of the love that is already there. As God says to Jesus when he is baptized, so God says to us all, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. What then of purity? Is spiritual purity irrelevant 
Well, as Paul often said in his letters, by no means. That being said, I think we tend to focus on the wrong things when it comes to matters of purity. In particular, there's a disproportionate emphasis on sex. Paul was guilty of this too. He had a lot to say about the subject, including some rather homophobic ideas. But this is also the same guy who says that it's better for everyone to remain abstinent like him. And that if they absolutely cannot control themselves as a last resort, they should go ahead and get married. This is not the guy you want to go to for romantic advice. His views on the subject are frankly repressive and unhealthy, but they've influenced a lot of our culture. As I was researching the subject of spiritual purity for this sermon, I came across something called the Rice Purity Test, developed by Rice University. It touts itself as the gold standard in testing one's innocence, with a score of 100 being totally pure of heart, and a zero being a depraved sinner. I took the test myself, and while it wouldn't be appropriate for me to share all of my answers, I ended up with a score of 44. <laughs> you are a little special, the results concluded. People who receive scores that fall into this range are probably a huge fan of cult movies. <laughs> I thought that was oddly specific, but also surprisingly accurate. The purity test includes questions such as, have you ever held hands romantically? kissed a non-family member, danced without leaving room for Jesus. <laughs> now call me crazy, but I don't think any of those things make a person impure. On the contrary, they're expressions of love and human connection mistaken for some kind of vice. I'm not saying there are no sins in the proverbial bedroom. But you know, it wasn't the times that I held someone's hand that I lost my innocence. It was every time that someone reached out a hand for help and I turned away. If I were to write that test, it would look a lot different. It would have questions like, have you ever neglected to help someone in need? Have you ever paid someone less than a living wage? Have you ever perpetuated racist stereotypes? Have you ever committed an act of violence against another human being? Have you ever used religious dogma to marginalize people? Have you ever dehumanized someone because of their political affiliation? Have you ever participated in systems of oppression? Personal vice can be problematic in its own right, to be sure, but my tests would focus more on how we treat each other in our world. I'd like to think that my score on that test would be a little higher. But I don't know. I'm no saint. None of us are. None of us is entirely pure. You know, there's apparently no such thing as truly pure water found in nature, contrary to what all those bottled water companies and manufacturers will tell you about their fresh mountain springs. Truly pure water can only be created in a lab, and it's only used for pharmaceutical engineering and industrial processes, cleaning microprocessors, for instance, that sort of thing. 
As I understand it, it's actually dangerous to drink. It's ironically thirsty and it will drain minerals out of your body. Pure water does not exist in nature. Neither, I suspect, does a truly pure soul. Of course, we should strive where we can to be pure of heart in the things that really matter, in helping and loving and serving one another, and in offering grace when we inevitably stumble. Tap water has its impurities, and so do we. And communion bread from the jewel Osco isn't exactly, you know, of the highest quality. I once heard it described as a collection of chemicals in the shape of bread. But you know, maybe those imperfections make them perfect, perfect symbols for imperfect people. We all need a little grace, the kind that we find at the baptismal fonts and at the communion table, where we're celebrated, where we celebrate each other and God's love as part of God's creation. Amen.